talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You are listening to Talking Benefits. Every month, we cover the top stories in retirement and healthcare, the latest benefits, hot topics, and whatever else the industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Ann Patterson. I'm Julie Stick. And I'm Kelly Colesrude. Now let's talk benefits. Just a quick note before we get started, Ann Patterson couldn't join us today. Aw, poor mm. Ann. Poor us. Yeah. We've decided to kick off 2019 by addressing an important issue facing our country and in turn, our workplaces and employee benefit plans, mental health and substance abuse. Obviously, that's a broad topic with many aspects. So we've decided to create a series of podcasts and focus on different topics. Our first one, in January, we're turning our attention to mental and emotional health, and more specifically, some of the barriers to treatment and ways employers can help workers while in crisis and facilitate their return to work. The second in our series, in February, our focus will shift to stress and mindfulness. And in March, we will address substance abuse and addiction. Each month, we'll be interviewing an expert and getting their insight on what employers can do to address these issues. To start off, let's define why we're talking about mental and emotional health in the workplace. Physical health expenditures by employers greatly exceed mental health payments, even though mental health parity is required by law. In contrast to these expenditures, mental disorders are at the top of the list for the most burdensome and costly illnesses in the United States at over $200 billion a year, well exceeding the cost burden of heart disease, stroke, cancer, and obesity. Furthermore, approximately one-third of the mental health cost burden is related to productivity losses including unemployment, disability, and lower work performance. The International Foundation surveys its membership on these issues, and they are significant. Respondents were asked about the impact of mental health and substance abuse on workplace performance measures. Almost two-thirds of respondents stated that absenteeism and tardiness due to these issues is either somewhat or very impactful. This is followed closely by an impact on physical health, overall job performance, relationships with coworkers, and morale. Additionally, respondents predict that on average more than 12% of their health care costs are attributed to mental health and substance abuse issues. Well, before we get into this any further, let's define what we're talking about when we say mental health and emotional health. There is a difference between those two, although the concepts are closely related. So for definitions, mental health refers to your ability to process information. Emotional health refers to your ability to express feelings, which are based upon the information that you've processed. And as to how they're connected, here's an example. So let's say your cognitive function or your mental health is hindered by depression or anxiety. It may follow that you struggle with accurately identifying a situation. This can then trigger inappropriate emotional responses because those responses are based upon inaccurate thoughts. So Julie, another way to express it might be that mental health refers to the functioning of a person's brain and emotional health refers to the stability of a person's emotions. That's exactly right. Well, the next question to pose is why should employers get involved with this? I see a couple reasons. The first one, from a purely business or bottom line perspective, is that, as Justin mentioned before, mental and emotional health struggles can dramatically affect productivity. 
People who are dealing with mental or emotional issues miss more work, and even if they're at work, they're distracted and not functioning at full productivity. So it's definitely a cause of absenteeism and presenteeism. And then a second reason, also mentioned before, is that poor mental and emotional health can result in high health care costs. These costs come from mental health treatments, as well as additional costs from physical health treatments that are related to or result from poor mental health. Oftentimes, people dealing with a mental illness are at a higher risk of experiencing a wide range of chronic physical conditions. And the flip side is true as well. People living with chronic physical health conditions have been found to experience depression and anxiety at twice the rate of the general population. That's right, Kelly. We found that employers get involved because it shows that they care, which in turn can boost employee morale. It can also impact other workforce components. It can reduce legal exposure. It can also improve worker safety. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak with Randy Kratz, Senior Account Manager with FEI Behavioral Health, a workforce resiliency organization that provides EAP, crisis management, and workplace violence prevention services. And you'll be hearing our interview throughout this episode. It seems that with mental and emotional health, there are barriers to overcome that aren't always encountered with physical health ailments. Unfortunately, there continues to be a stigma attached to mental health issues. This stigma can get in the way of individuals seeking the treatment they need. Julie, you and Randy talked about this. Let's listen in. Welcome. Thanks for being here with us today, Randy. Well, thanks for having me, Julie. What can employers do to help fight the negative stigmas that are connected to mental illness that may prevent workers from seeking mental health treatment before their illness triggers a crisis? It's interesting that this question still gets asked. Obviously, there's a need. The best way, I think, is to partner up with an organization like an EAP, not just look at it as a a benefit or a commodity Mm -hmm. that's a phone number on a website or on a poster, that it's actually a partnership you have and that you work together, especially with middle management, where you come together and you help them understand how they can provide an environment that's safe, that's trustworthy, that provides choices for people, that's collaborative, And that is empowering. And I guess the thing that it starts with, again, is leadership, that they have to go first. Mm -hmm. And maybe a sense of transparency, a willingness to talk about that. So we know that stigmas get lowered or even taken away when people feel safe to talk about those things, where they're not going to have that held against them. They're going to realize that's a normal part of being human. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think it's important that we create that sort of environment. And what's interesting is when you create an environment that's that way, then you can really discern between what is really a personal problem and what is a performance problem. It'll become much clearer then as an HR person Mm -hmm. to be able to then look at how do I hold this person accountable because the environment helps you sort of diagnose that and figure that out. Well, that's a great point. And I think it's important for an organization to have that uh, culture of trust so that if the employee doesn't feel comfortable maybe going to their direct manager, that there's at least someone in their organization they can go to, whether it's someone in HR or a colleague or the manager of their manager or something, but have that, that there's a trust somewhere that they can go to. That's a really good point, Julie. In 
this part of my career, I've been really working with first responders, mm -hmm. people who protect the public safety, right? Mm -hmm. Law enforcement, fire. And one of the things that they have is peer support programs, mm -hmm. and many of them on a formal basis, mm -hmm. right? So as you said, they have those sanctuaries. That's what I think we need to be getting back to, provide those either formal or informal peer support places or, or opportunities. I was intrigued by Randy's discussion of peer support, and it reminded me of a case study that I learned about during a focus group a couple of years back. Peer support mental health programs have been evolving as a strategy to help support a psychosocially safe environment. We all found that concept really interesting, so we looked into it further, and these programs typically involve a group of workers who have actually been through mental health struggles in the past, so they have a deeper understanding of the issues. Many workers may not feel comfortable going to their supervisors, and many supervisors don't feel comfortable addressing the issue with their employees. So these peer support groups really reduce some of the barriers workers might have in connecting to mental health resources offered through their workplaces because they have a real person who has been through it before explaining everything to them. It is important to note, though, that this doesn't replace professional support through human resources, benefit providers, or doctors. But the peer supporter can act as a catalyst for encouraging access to professional resources. And obviously, all peer supporters should follow clear guidelines and have appropriate initial and ongoing training. Kelly, in addition, these peer support programs could be a conduit to other professional resources that you have mentioned, such as an EAP. Good point. Peer support groups are one example of how employers can establish an accepting culture that normalizes mental health care and creates an environment of openness. Another way employers can do this is to address mental health issues in their sick leave policies. Consider, does your plan allow employees to use PTO or sick time for mental health without justification? In other words, can they use sick time without telling you that it was for a mental health issue? Also, does your sick leave policy expressly permit physical, mental, and emotional health-related absences? And if your plan requires a doctor's note, how does an employee handle that if he or she doesn't have a therapist? There are more barriers that seem to inhibit employees from seeking mental health treatment, such as being in denial about having a mental health issue, they may be uncertain whether the issue they face might require mental health treatment, or may be afraid or hesitant to admit that they have an issue. Are there cues or signs a supervisor or coworker can look for to help identify an employee in distress? Randy and Julie address these concerns in their interview as well. So what are signs that a person needs mental health care or is in an emotional crisis? The best way I can answer that is if a manager or a supervisor or the employer knows their people, then they'll know the difference. So if you know somebody at their best, you know when they're not at their best, mm -hmm. right? right? The number one predictor that a personal problem is affecting the workplace is absenteeism. So you take a look at the job, you take a look at what's typical for attendance-wise, you know, whether they clock in or not, or mm -hmm. they sat, out, what are they, right? You sort of figure that out. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good predictor when you look at work performance, other kinds of things, how they talk with their coworkers, their colleagues, also behavioral things. If you know that typically they're somebody who's civil and respectful and kind, and all of a sudden they start to isolate, they don't take breaks with their um, friends at work, they're not talking anymore, 
you know, those kinds of things. Other sort of physical things might be a change in the way somebody um, dresses, mm -hmm. right? The kind mm -hmm. of friends, maybe they're taking a lot of breaks away from the job. You know that they're at work physically, but they're not connected. They, they might be going to the restroom a lot. They might be taking phone calls. Mm -hmm. and, and that could mean a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, we all have occasional bad days, right? Right. Well, but what, what we mean, though, as you know, to know whether there might be something more serious there would be if you're starting to see a pattern of that over time. There, there's nothing really scientific, but typically we say if you're starting to see somebody have those sorts of things that I referred to from a work performance, a behavioral and a physical standpoint, you start seeing those, you probably have somebody who may have a diagnosable mental health issue. Okay. Yeah. Now, somebody could do something egregious enough that would be just one time, right? Somebody who got into a fight in the hallway with mm -hmm. somebody. That, mm -hmm. that would be a sign that something's going on right. that you'd want to take a look at. Another barrier employers may need to address is the lack of understanding workers have when it comes to benefit coverage of mental health conditions. If mental health benefits are offered by your plan, the law requires parity between physical health and mental health plan coverage. But an employee may not understand what that means for coverage of mental health treatment. There are varying types of mental health treatments and levels of care. Be clear about how your plan covers hospital inpatient care versus residential care versus outpatient care. Also, does your plan offer online or telepsych options? It's also important to specify the types of therapy that are covered and not covered. Give examples in your communication to employees. Workplace discomfort is another barrier. Specifically, survey respondents stated that a top barrier is discomfort among supervisors in addressing issues with workers. In her interview, Julie asked Randy about the specific hurdle. How do supervisors and or coworkers go about approaching the person? Well, again, it depends on the relationship. First and foremost, you want to make sure it's done in a safe way and in a private way. Mm -hmm. Not accusatory. Mm -hmm. That really helps you understand how you can help and keep the problem the problem. Don't make you the problem. So sometimes what supervisors tend to do is they get upset or they might take it personal. So it's really important to manage yourself first because mm -hmm. when we're angry like that, uh, we all get dumber, not smarter. <laughs> so we say things that right. we wish we would have said a little differently, right? right? So make sure, again, you keep it safe and you keep it calm. Keep it a place where you can really get them to talk, to understand, so you can problem solve the next step. Mm -hmm. At any time, I would hope an employer feels safe to call the EAP for consultation to. Because a supervisor, maybe their problem is a problem employee okay. or an employee who's struggling, right? Right. That's a good use of the EAP to consult and do that too. But that's, I, No, that's a really good tip because I don't think I'd always thought about that. So Yeah, and we would keep that confidential too. Right, okay. That, you know, and, and so yeah. you're just looking for a confidential third party to help mm -hmm. you do the right thing. Right. We'll hear more from Randy Kratz after this quick break. Let's see. First, I'm going to attend this session on the substance abuse epidemic. 
And then I think I'll go to the session about measuring the impact of workplace wellness programs. And then later in the day, I'll find out how I can help my employees navigate the complex healthcare system. Whoa, that sounds like a winning combination of helpful information. What are you talking about? The International Foundation's upcoming healthcare management conference. I just registered. It's in Denver, Colorado from April 30th through May 2nd. Sounds like a great way to find out how healthcare system changes will impact my plans. And I could probably do some networking with industry colleagues and experts. Could I also find strategies and tactics for lowering healthcare costs? You betcha. Visit ifebp.org slash healthcare for more information and to register. Okay, we've discussed the barriers and the challenges. So now let's turn to what employers can do. We'll be looking at this from three perspectives to give you specific ideas and takeaways. Supporting an employee in crisis, facilitating their return to work, and helping the coworkers affected by the employee in crisis. Let's go back to Julie and Randy. What can employers do to help a person who is going through an emotional crisis? There's different ways to approach that. That person's supervisor, if they have a, enough of a relationship, would want to take the person aside and uh, notice how that person's behavior or how it's affecting um, the workplace or the impact that's having and to talk about that. For example, if you would take a person aside privately and say that your colleagues are really worried about you, mm -hmm. they're concerned. They've noticed that you're not yourself. I want to know how I can help you. If that person's supervisor doesn't know them very well, there's not a real positive relationship, then maybe somebody from HR could help or somebody that that person does trust at the workplace to, to include them in a conversation. Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to connect to work-related things. Right. You really need to be able to talk about the impact that that might be having, even if it's just as simple as people are worried about you. Mm -hmm. You've called in sick a few times, and then I would hope that the employer has an employee assistance program, that you involve that, mm -hmm. do the best you can to connect them to that kind of a confidential, private, competent resource to help that person if they need help. Certainly you can refer them to make sure they have the phone number or the, the website. Are there other ways the employer can get the employee involved with the EAP? I'll give you an example. We had an employer who, this person, all of a sudden there was a phone call that came in that her aunt had just been murdered. And the employee obviously went from just being her jovial self to crying, to upset, people were worried, right? And, and so we consulted with that employer and, and the plan was to get the supervisor and HR and the employee in a room and dial of the EAP. Okay. And so they got into a private space, dialed the number. When the EAP answered, say, hi, I'm so-and-so from this company. I have somebody um, that really needs to talk to a counselor. Um, I'm going to hand the phone over to that person, and then we will respectfully leave the room and let oh, them. So they were the, with her. They were with her. They bridged that. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't always work. Right. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. people don't want to do it that way. But if you had somebody at the workplace who had a really close relationship with an employee who is struggling, you could get them to make that call on behalf of the person. 
from a work performance standpoint, you know, one way to get somebody the EAP is to make what or some organizations call mandatory supervisory formal referrals. These are referrals where you suspect that a person's work performance problems that they're caused by a personal problem, mm -hmm. whether that be mental health, alcohol and drug, financial. And so then some people put it as a part of a second chance agreement, condition of continued employment, mm -hmm. whatever that might be, mm -hmm. and then let the EAP know we have a formal referral coming. The person has this amount of time to make contact with you. The only thing we want to know is if they made contact and if they're compliant or not with the EAP recommendations. Right. When you make a mandatory supervisory formal referral, you're really investing in that employee. And I say you need to make it like a, any business decision. Mm -hmm. That employee counts for something. You have a lot there and, and don't just throw that away. Especially if you know in previously they were a really high level or a good employee. So right. that means there's something else and worth the effort in, right. in my professional opinion. These types of situations can be very challenging. We'd like to share a couple other preemptive ideas to prepare supervisors and staff. The first is the concept of mental health first aid. This is something that the foundation has been tracking for a few years now. Mental health first aid is training to identify and help individuals who may be developing a mental health problem or are in mental health crisis. Almost one in five responding organizations are now offering this training. And this is an area where we have seen substantial growth. Another idea is resiliency training. We're hearing more and more about resiliency or the ability to bounce back during a challenge, during change or after change, and after adversity. I know at the foundation, we're bringing resiliency training to the office this spring in conjunction with National Employee Benefits Day for our 140 employees. We're gonna be doing this through our EAP program. Resiliency isn't a trait that people either have or don't have. Instead, it involves behaviors, thoughts, and actions that can be learned and developed in anyone. Workers who are more resilient are more likely to manage stress, avoid burnout, stay motivated, be more flexible, and manage change and setback, which we all know happens a lot in any given work day or work week. So the workplace is a very appropriate environment to learn resiliency skills. The next question to address is how employers can help an employee return to work during or after mental health treatment. This was something that we addressed in our survey as well. Some common return-to-work initiatives include case management services, either on-site or off-site, which is offered by more than one-third of respondents to our survey. Also, organizations are frequently offering flexible or gradual job duties if needed. In addition, organizations commonly offer mental health components as part of their disease or disability management programs, which can provide additional resources. Julie asked Randy about a specific example of return-to-work strategies in action. So how can employers help a person recover after a mental health crisis or issue? What we used to do with EAPs is actually have a return to work conference that would include HR, their supervisor, and then would have a private confidential process that would, in a general way, summarize what happened. And then the employer can talk about ways they can help that employee succeed in the return to work. The employee can talk about what he needs, what he's learning about himself, what he's going to do differently mm -hmm. so that doesn't happen again. Because from a psychological standpoint, 
uncertainty is really hard. Mm -hmm. I'll give an example. I just had to talk with two officers who were involved in an active shooting who were out on administrative leave for over three months. They were wondering what's going to happen. Is my job still there yet? What I left and what are people going to think? They're wondering. So it was real important for them. They talked about the kind of things that are going through their mind. They could get pieces of the uncertainty puzzle filled in for them. Mm -hmm. And that's really when you think about returning to work. Mm -hmm. You, you want to be able to do what you can to provide that kind of information because, mm -hmm. you know, our mind starts to fill in the gaps with worst case scenarios or other mm -hmm. kinds of things. And it's not always the healthiest way of thinking. So it, it really helps to be intentional, to take some time to really focus strategically on what that means for that person. Employees rarely work completely alone, so how can employers support the co-workers affected by an employee in crisis? Here's more from Julie and Randy on that. Is it appropriate for co-workers to be managed somehow or, or the person who's returning to work be given some tips on what to talk about? Because their co-workers might say to them, hey, Jim, you were gone for a month and where were you? Is there something that employers can do to help the employee prepare to come back to work and potentially face some questions like this from well-meaning co-workers? I would say ideally it would be great to have somebody like an EAP consultant meet with the work group ahead of time and not disclose information but just help them with whatever concerns they have like they may wonder what do we say how should we act mm -hmm. people have a lot of those questions because we think maybe if we say or do the wrong thing it's going to make things worse right we don't right. want to do that right it's sort of a, a psychoeducational process and then if you look at the employee then you help him or her talk about it in a way that's appropriate that's safe, that's professional. So what I would say to somebody like that is to say they were out for medical reasons mm -hmm. and they're getting help, they're feeling better. But what the supervisor could do too is say, hey, do you have anything you want to say to the worker? They may say no. Right. Right. And then they can do that mm -hmm. in their own way individually or just not, not at all, just keep it, it mm -hmm. you know. But if they want to, then I think the counselor or the EAP consultant can coach the employee on the appropriate things to say. All right, so we've given you some ideas and guidelines to build a more resilient workplace that can support employees with mental and emotional health challenges. It's one thing to talk about all of this in a practical, dispassionate way now when we're doing this podcast episode, but certainly it's critical to be prepared but recognize that in a sudden crisis, the rule book may go out the window and compassion takes over. Go ahead and trust your instincts and how to deal with things. We wanted to thank our subject matter expert, Randy Kratz, for his time and expertise on this very important topic. And we'd also like to give a shout out to listener Jim Brashida. Jim is a labor trustee with the SAG Producers Pension and Health Plan and a member of the Foundation's Trustee Committee. In addition, we'd like to wish a happy birthday to our producer, Amanda. Thank you all for listening, and we will be back in your podcast feeds in February. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to it in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you prefer, so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Today's program is copyrighted in 2019 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved.
The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Thank God. <laughs> no, Amanda, you're going to have to patch this sucker up. <laughs> She's being pretty patient. It's her birthday. It's her birthday. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. We should maybe say that. Should we say that somewhere? Easter egg. She's just going to cut it out. <laughs> yeah.